Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest is Don Gunn, who is a recording and mixing engineer and producer out of Seattle, Washington. And he's worked with a ton of great artists over the years, including Death Cab for Cutie, Peter Frampton, Soundgarden, King Crimson, and so many more. And in this episode, we get into some really fun conversation. We talk about some stuff that's a little different than normal. We talk a lot about the practice of developing your craft and actually taking time to work on your skills and work on your creativity so that you can keep your mind fresh and feel excited to work on your audio. And not only that, but actually do better work because you've actually spent the time to you know, practice your skills and get stronger at them. And we get into some cool conversation about just how to segment your time. And I think you guys are going to find that really interesting because it's definitely something that I feel a lot of people don't actually do. A lot of people don't take that time to work on their skills. They just work on work. And that's not always the best way to develop your skills. So I think you're going to really enjoy that part of the conversation. And also in this conversation, we get into a lot of live sound stuff because Don has done a lot of great work, again, working with bands like Death Cab for Cutie or King Crimson, working on their 5.1 surround mixes and mixing a bunch of their live records. So Don comes into this conversation with a different perspective than a lot of the other engineers that we've had on this on the show, which work in studios or work entirely on film. So talking about music in surround and talking about working on live music, I think has its own challenges. So yeah, I think you're going to find this episode really interesting and you're going to learn a ton from it. So let's just jump right into it. Don Gunn, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing? I am well. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Amazing. Good to be here. Fun, fun to talk about recording and stuff on a nice, cold, windy Seattle morning. <laughs> Gotta love it. It's wintertime. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I'm from Toronto, too. So we definitely are getting our colder. You, you have real winter. Coming through. Yeah, we have real winter. <laughs> you have rain. <laughs> we have fake and some, winter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For people who might not know your background and how you got into music and ultimately into production, can you give us that story? Yeah, sure. Um my my journey began in a band, like probably a lot of people in my position did. Uh, I was I was the drummer in a band. I was the guy with the four track. I recorded all of our demos, and then when we finally went to a real studio, um, I was the guy that sat at the console with the engineer. Uh, I was always very invested and heavily interested in the process and. Uh, ultimately the results. And then when we put out an album and I thought it sounded terrible, uh, I decided I really needed to learn how to do this properly. Uh, so that if I still sucked putting something out, it was my fault instead of somebody I paid a lot of money to. Um, so the studio where we had recorded our record, uh, their engineer left, a year or so after we put it out and I called the owner and I said, you should hire me. Um, just, cause. <laughs> just, just cause, yeah, <laughs> just cause, uh, uh, I had, I had postponed going to college. Um, I'd gotten accepted to Berkeley school of music, but our record came out. We were playing a bunch and I just didn't want to like let my dream die yet. I wanted to see how that went as a musician and playing 
but I was working in a music store, you know, like normal shit. Everybody who's <laughs> a musician either works in a music store or like has a day job they hate, but they're playing at night and same thing for the studio thing. So I, uh, I, I convinced my way into this position at the studio and I said, give me a couple weeks with some reels of tape and all the manuals just to make sure I don't really screw something up and then throw me in. And he did. And uh, that was in Hartford, Connecticut, in a tiny little studio. Uh, but that that was it. That like set me on my way. And I was I was hooked because I found that I enjoyed recording other people's music as much as I enjoyed working on my own. Um, and I had worked with some other engineers while in this band and stuff where, you know, they were just frustrated musicians who knew how to run the gear and were doing this, but really would rather have been working on their own music. And I think that's a dangerous position to be in when you're responsible for somebody else's creativity. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I, I made sure that that kind of got drilled into my head by observing this that early to, to not put myself in that position. Um, I didn't want to be that guy who was bitter because I wasn't recording my own music right then. Fair. Um, That's a really good point. And, and I really enjoyed and still do working on other people's music. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you said like, you know, you always, you wanted to be working with other people. And, and I do think that that is just, it's such a great way to learn about becoming a better musician and um, about the studio side of things and, and experimenting with different styles of music and different techniques. Because yeah, when you're working on your own stuff, you get so in your head about it sometimes. And you just, you know, you it's like very narrow minded or narrow, fo narrow focused. So when you do work with other artists, it, it forces you to try different things or how you work with different tones and it, it, it just changes the way you work altogether. Well, and I think for, for me, I've found music to be so collaborative I'm, I get frustrated and held up by my inadequacies <laughs> when I'm trying to write on my own. Um, I mean, you know, let alone finding the time to write outside of, of working on music for other people all the time. But then just finding the motivation on my own is very different than when I'm collaborating with somebody else. And I, working on other people's music with them, I'm not collaborating from a songwriting standpoint, but I'm collaborating from a sonic standpoint, uh, from a production standpoint, um, which, you know, I guess kind of sometimes leads into co-writing or whatever, but, you know, forming somebody's vision because I have the, the path to get them there. Um, that to me is a lot more interesting than sitting in a room alone. Absolutely. It's almost like a, a form of like forced creativity sometimes, you know, it's totally. Like, yeah. You're in a room with people. And when you're drawing a blank, it's like there's someone else to just somebody's going to have an idea, idea to springboard off of. Yep. Yep. Even if it's not great, at least you're, you're you're turning over that, you know, part of the process where suddenly, OK, come up with an idea. And is it cool? Great. Let's use it. Or if it's not cool, let's not use it. But at least you've done something. Um, you know, I'll just, I'll go for a walk if I'm frustrated and stuck <laughs> on my own. I'll just leave. I'm going to stop. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's like when you, you, 
I, I do think a lot of people get into these creative ruts where they're like, uh, you know, I'm a musician, but like, I just, I'm not feeling like writing today. And so they don't. And then it just like, that stuff eventually catches up to you. You're just like, oh, I haven't written in like a month or three months or whatever. And you're like, oh shit. Like, yeah. Right. <laughs> and and, and, and be, sorry, go ahead. Go, no, you go ahead. I was going to say, just, and just being around other musicians, it, 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 it is that forced creativity. It, it is that thing that just like keeps that muscle trained and, and working. Yep. Yep. And like, I was always the lyricist in the band. And if I didn't write for a while, getting back into it always felt like a bit of a slog. Um, and I'm still writing with my bandmate from that time. Um, and you know, even now I just, I don't worry about writer's block or whatever. Like I'm going to sit down and if it's a blank piece of paper, I'm going to just work and I might throw it out, but I'm going to do something. And if, even if I, you know, I've written for a few hours and I pull one word out of it that I'm going to use. Great. I did something. Do you schedule time to like work on your craft? Um, I'm going to (laughs) (laughs) actually, yes. Um, because I need to do that. So I, I have booked myself for January um, next month. So I am going to actually write. And I, I've tried to do this the last few years for December and it's never worked. <laughs> December would get completely hammered with sessions. So this, this time, uh, I have one mixed date booked the beginning of January, but other than that, uh, it's all me and I've got a ton of ideas to work on. That's amazing. So I have to do it. Otherwise it's just never going to happen because it's so easy for me to just be like, Oh yeah, I have to update this or we need to get you in and track these vocals quick. Like, okay, February 1st, who wants to come in? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it, it just, I made, had to make it happen. That's awesome. Yeah. I, it's some, it's one of those things that I feel like so many people don't do. And, yeah, it's like even if even if I mean, maybe taking a month off is too much for some people, but like, you know, maybe it's just like dedicating an hour a week or something like that, right. you know, or, or even 10 minutes a day or something like that. Something small that can just get that muscle working and, and yep. keep you in that that zone. Right. It's like they say, like, you know, if you're trying to work out, like do one push up a day, make that your goal. And it's like once you've done it, it becomes easier because you're just in the sure. moment. Right. Yep. So it's very much the same sort of idea with mixing and, and being creative. Well, it is. And and. It's easy to make the excuses not to do it, um, just like exercise or whatever. Um, you know, it's it's a lot easier to not do the thing you should be doing <laughs> than it is to no matter how small, even if it is just ten minutes. And you know, for like having my phone with me all the time has been really good for archiving uh, lyric ideas. The last x number of years you know i used to come up with ideas all the time and try and find a piece of paper and write it down even uh you know rhythmic or melodic ideas making a voice memo having that stuff there's no excuse to lose an idea anymore so even that part of the process you may not be consciously sitting down for 10 minutes or half an hour or an hour a day or one day a week and doing a thing but you're going to have ideas and you're going to be creative throughout your day. You can save those things. 
um, and then dedicate an hour or two or whatever to going through those at some point. Yeah. I, I get a phone full of voicemail or uh, <laughs> voice memos. Yeah. I love that. I think that that's such a good point because, yeah, you could just be like walking somewhere. You could be at the grocery store or whatever. If an idea comes to mind, like you don't want to forget that. You just got to yeah. just got to jot it down. Right. I think it was like, I will forget it. <laughs> oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> It's, it's amazing how many times I've recorded an idea and then I forget that I recorded it. You know, it's just like it gets lost in my hard drive of stuff. So sometimes you just have to go back and even revisit some old ideas to see if that like if that gets you going. I found something the other day as I was uh, going through my folder of different. I, usually it's where I put uh, like I'm testing out mics or trying a different drum miking technique. I have a folder of that stuff, but I also will throw musical ideas in there. Um, and I found one and I listened to the bounce. I was like, well, that's cool. I have no idea when I did that or how I did that. So at some point I'll open it back up, but you know, that's kind of fun it too, is this like moment of discovery of something I created <laughs> and like, Oh wow, that's neat. I don't remember it at all. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's great. And, and hopefully that'll turn into something. But finding that nugget now, knowing I've got writing time coming up, is kind of exciting. Of course. And sometimes you even find stuff that in the moment when you recorded it, you thought, oh, this is garbage. But like, you just did it. You kept it. You saved it for whatever reason. And then you go back and you're like, oh, wait a minute. Now I'm feeling inspired by this now. Like this, this gets me good. This gives me all sorts of new ideas. If I'm programming synth sounds or whatever, usually I'm just running a MIDI track because as I'm coming up with a sound, I start, you know, I want to hear it musically in a context and I'll just fart out some sort of idea. I'm not thinking about it, but I save all that stuff because there may be a kernel of something in there that when I go back and listen, I go, oh, okay, got it. That's cool. Uh, and, and if I'm just programming a sound for the sake of programming sounds and I don't do that, I'm going to lose anything. Totally. And I kind of like having my programming time sampling, programming, sonic exploration stuff is sort of separate from composing. Like when I'm composing, I want that to be the thing I'm doing. Uh, you know, I'm not sitting there trying, I'm not like scrolling through presets and crap like that. Because um, that just, I totally lose the, the motivation at that point. So I, I kind of have my programming time and then my writing time but i don't want to lose an idea during programming time either yeah that, that that's amazing like I, I i like how you framed that of kind of like the breaking breaking things up and just having like dedicated time and i think that that is important because so many times so many people don't take a moment to just like work on one task specifically they'll just kind of get lost in their own experimentation and then they just never finish the thing that they started and there goes that idea that you had originally right Right. And, and I, I follow a similar kind of pattern when I'm editing and or mixing for a project. I have to kind of compartmentalize editing into one time, whether it's, you know, going through takes and comping, tuning vocals, uh, whatever, time correcting drums, all that stuff. Like, that's not mixing. That's that's editorial work. And my brain is in one mode for that versus I'm mixing. Now I'm, I just want to be lost in the song and I don't want to think about, Oh shit, that 
note there is flat. I got to go back and tune that. And like, I need to have those moments separated so that I'm thinking purely musically and I'm going after the end goal when I'm mixing and I'm, I'm hearing the song in my head. And now I need to get there. Um, versus you know, sitting here and 20 tracks of drums that I'm chopping into 30 second notes and trying to make sound like a real performance. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, they, I 100% they need, agree they need with you to be that. different. Yeah. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with you on that. I'm definitely a big advocate for segmenting your workflow because yeah, you, you, you know, when you're in recording mode, you, you gotta be focused on getting the great tones and, and all that. You don't want to be like distracting yourself with editing on the spot or trying to mix it on the spot. Like it's, it's different. You know, you just like, leave that time for recording time and then you get into editing mode and, and I love how you put it just like when you're when you're you know editing drums you just focus on editing drums and you just you know do that and you know you tune vocals and you just really compartmentalize all these different stages because then yeah you you don't have to you're not wasting creative uh, creativity on these little tasks that can just be batched and and yep. done in, in their own stage do you do you do a lot of batch tasks like will you will you do all of your editing of drums for like a whole record or do you do like one song at a time or uh it did well okay so it varies if i I've, I've worked with a bunch of kind of modern metal bands and and some like i'm working on a melodic death metal record right now and a lot of that stuff where i know from the outset that i'm really gonna have to go in and edit drums and they're gonna have to almost sound machine like you know it's just it's sort of part of the genre um i want to get that edit done before we've added anything else so because everybody's got to play to this time base that's now corrected um so on on those kinds of projects, generally, once I've comped the drum tracking, I'll I'll just tell the band, I need my time. It's time to make the sausage, and I'll just do it right then. Um, and then we can move on, and and everything else that gets added is in context with where the drums are supposed to be. Um, so it it in a way it's good because it gives the drummer a break, especially after he's just done like, you know, 240 BPM with double kicks for <laughs> a few hours and he's beat go get lunch and give me a moment and I'll do my thing. Uh, and then other times if, if obviously there's all of this is, is sort of on a per project basis and it all has to be kept contextual with what the end result is supposed to be. So yeah, I, I will always, if I hear something later down the road that really is just rubbing wrong, I'll just go back and fix it. But it, yeah, I try not, I don't want to spend an entire day doing nothing but drum edits. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to, it just, my soul ekes out of my body doing that. Uh, <laughs> so I will, I will try and break it up a bit. Um, just for me as much as for like the band if they're hanging around yeah because nobody wants to sit there and watch me edit drums fair uh, I don't want to sit and watch somebody else edit drums it's awful uh, but it has to get done 
in the right time and place within the process. Or if it's just a, you know, totally different kind of project that doesn't require editing drums. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I like that too. Those are good too. Yeah. yeah. I, I like, I, I agree with what you said about editing drums. Usually like after the drummer does it, I, I'm very much the same way. It's like, you know, if you're, if you're practicing to a click track, if you're trying to record to a click track, it's like the faster I can get rid of that cl- that click track, the better. Because then, like, people are playing to a musician, and it just feels better, and it feels more natural. So, if, yeah, if you can make a tighter, if you can make the drums into the click track, then you know everyone's just going to play better to it. Um, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, and I always try and find the the largest division that I can maintain uh, within the performance. To so you know, if I start with bars or half notes or quarter notes, and like, okay, can I get away with just locking some of those things in and let everything in between still have the flow and the groove? And especially if there's a lot of ghost notes on the snare or something, like that's where the the rhythm is happening. Um, and and maintaining as much of that as possible. On more technical metal stuff, that's not the point. Like, nobody's sitting there playing a deep groove at 96 BPM with funky ghost notes. They're trying to play 240 (laughs) 30-second notes and blast beats all the way through. That's got to sound like a machine. Because if it doesn't, it just sounds janky and weird. Um, So it's, it's always dependent upon the context of the song. Yeah. But I try and maintain as much of the the drummer's humanity as possible. So you're really only just like editing the like kind of like the downbeat stuff or, you know, the, the actual If I can if I can get away with it, sure. Yeah. But That's other awesome. times, no. <laughs> it's it's every kick, it's every snare. Um I had to overdub a ride cymbal part on a project the other day because the drummer didn't play the right rhythm and the guitar player was freaking out about it not being this 16th thing. So I was like, all right, cool. So I just, you know, walk over, play the part, put it in, send it off, get the thumbs up. Will you take a similar approach with guitars? Like when you record a bass or a guitar, do you immediately edit it afterwards for other for the other musicians to play on top of afterwards? Yep. Yep. Gotcha. Because I'm also, at that point, I'm also comping it because all the performances that they've just done are in my head. Like, I don't want to wait. I'll make notes and I use the comments section in pro tools all the time for, you know, notating which take I thought was really good, um, for comping, but I want to just get the comping done, uh, because it's fresh. They're there. If they have questions or they think a particular performance or take was better, we can just hash that out. And, it, ah, it just moves the process along. Gotcha. Yeah. Are um, you typically- and especially well, on the metal stuff too? Like I'm always tracking a DI if I'm miking an amp or, you know, doing bass through a bunch of stuff. And that DI is also my edit, my, my super transient editing kind of, of track. Cause like super fuzzed out heavy guitars, there's no transient anymore. I'm not going to try and edit that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the like the the magic like the magic bullets of the uh, the secrets of editing guitars. It's like have a DI. It's like it's just an editing tool. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's so handy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
That, that's awesome. So do you, when you're editing guitars, will you get like really granular with it? Or I guess obviously it's case by case basis, I'm sure. But um, like, do you do like the, the elastic audio thing or are you just kind of typically just working on bigger chunks and comping sections? Well, it depends on the part. You know, if it's a super tight palm muted kind of thing or, you know, really a riff that should be in unison with the drums, I have no problem chopping it up really tight and then quantizing it. Um, I will, I, I bounce back and forth, even on, on tonal stuff. I bounce b- between beat detective and elastic audio. Um, I, there's something still about beat detective that I can work really fast in. <laughs> even with guitars, even with guitars. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I've found a way to make it really smooth and I don't hear edits and, yeah. What's the secret? <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, it's <laughs> it's w- where crossfades are always pre-edit. Um, and I just I'm I'm really meticulous about going through every edit and making sure that I'm no I'm not hearing anything. Like it has to be perfect. Which is how it should on. be. Like uh, I feel you so many think. people edit edit tracks and they just <laughs> you know they 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 think that the computer did all the work for them and they don't even bother checking their work and it's like. Do you know how many mistakes there are sometimes? Like how many le- uh, fades are missing and clicks and pops oh, you get? Like <laughs> I am, I'm so anal about fades uh, and and checking every edit. Um, yeah, because I hear those things, and if I hear it, it just pulls me right out of the song immediately. And I get sent stuff all the time to mix. We're the edits are just awful. And, and in me. those cases, do you just re-edit it or do you send do you send it back to them and tell them to edit? Uh, it depends on how extreme it is. If it's something that, you know, if they just forgot to put fades in, I'll just add the fades. Um, but I'll send stuff back. I don't have time <laughs> to do Fair. all that again. Like, <laughs> come on, you want me to mix it? I'm that's then it's my job. You're not asking me to edit it. You want me to mix it. Exactly. And and to go back to that that earlier point of compartmentalizing your time, it's like, yeah, if you're getting paid to mix, like you're not you're not supposed to be editing. So you you, you have your creative hat on just to mix it and make it sound as good as possible. And, and editing is not part of that process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ideally, in the same vein, like if I'm hired to mix, I don't necessarily want to be tuning your vocal if that if it hasn't been done and it needs to be done. Fair. You know, if I get it, I'm expecting to receive what what you want mixed. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make decisions about all these different guitar parts you're sending me. I don't want to make decisions about whether you did or didn't tune your vocal. Just send me tracks to mix. It's almost like you, you always want to kind of be thinking that like, or kind of pretend like you're not sending it to someone else afterwards. It's like, make it the final product as best as it can be like in the moment. Right. You know, for each stage. Yeah, that, that's a good idea. <laughs> but it never happens. <laughs> it, no, it, of course not. <laughs> One one thing you mentioned earlier was the idea of um, sonic exploration, and you you kind of glossed over it, but you, you talked about experimenting with things like different mic techniques and stuff like that. Um, is that something that you also take time to to work on and and experiment with, or, or do you typically do oh, that yeah. in a session? Um, I will do it in a session, and if I do it in a session, it's always sort of the like wild card track that I'm just going to print. Because I have an idea at the time and I want to see if it's going to work. And I will always put up 
a, a safety net normal mic, <laughs> you know, something I know is also going to work. Um, cause I don't want to tie my hands later on if I realize, well, that was a interesting idea, but it really sucked. Um, so I will, I will experiment a lot in sessions, but I also, anytime I have a free moment, especially like drum stuff, because there's so many different ways you can mic drums and try room mics and try mics that are pointing at the floor or pointing at the window behind the drums and do all that stuff. And I'm a drummer and I usually have a kit set up here. I will, I just, that's fun. And, or I want to try out different chains of compression on a mic that I've put inside in between the two hi-hat cymbals. You know, what, what does that do? Uh, I always want to know what that's going to be like. And if I can do that on my own time, then I can decide if something is worth attempting during a proper session. <laughs> yeah. Somebody's, <laughs> you know, paying for it and their time is always limited. Um, so I, I balance, try and balance how much experimentation I'm going to do when the clock's running and I know I'm, I'm there for somebody else, uh, versus, oh, I got an hour before somebody's showing up here. Let me try that thing I was thinking about. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, if people are paying you, especially if, I mean, I don't know if you charge by hour or if you charge by project, but like, especially if you're charging by hour, you can't, you can't be wasting people's time. No, and, and it's not the, that's not, it's not fair to them if you do something and it fails. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're not, like totally on board with the, Oh yeah, do whatever you want. Let's, let's just see what we can do. Yeah. Um, and, and sessions, especially like I do a lot of tracking at other studios, uh, because I want to utilize the spaces and I want the big rooms and I need ISO. If I've got more people playing, you know, those studios aren't cheap. We're there for a limited amount of time. Nobody's booking a month at a studio anymore. You know, we're there for a weekend or four days or a week, we got to maximize that time and do what we set out to do uh, and keep everybody on task. Uh, and that's, you know, part of my job as a producer is making sure that we're keeping to the schedule, we're keeping to the budget. Um, but, you know, there's always a little bit of time to mess around and, For sure. and try something. And yeah. people... Well, that gets people excited, too, when they hear something that sounds a little weird or unusual, but hear it in context and go, okay, I can see where that may go. Mm -hmm. Then it's just, it doesn't feel like such a like grind of, okay, ready? It's guitar overdub time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, one or two mics, yeah, that, that's quick and easy to set up and decide whether or not it sounds good. But if you're going to, like, mess around with, with, especially drums, it's like, you know, maybe this time we'll do XY overheads, and then we'll do space fair, and then we'll do a mono, and then we'll do, like, Glenn John's technique and this and that. It's like, you're, you're going to kill the session. And if you have the time and it's understood beforehand that, okay, we're going to try a few different mic techniques on the drums. So we're going to do a batch of songs one way. Now we'll break everything down and we'll start it over just to see what we can do. You know, lay that out beforehand and make sure everybody's on board. Yeah. Then you're fine. Yeah, totally. I, I think I heard somewhere, I was listening to another podcast and, and they were talking about Sylvia Massey. Are you familiar with Sylvia? Oh, yeah. yeah. And she's like, you know, the queen of like 
super creative mic techniques and all this and that. And and the way it was described was that her process is when you book with her, you know, let's say it's a two week project. It's like, you know, days one through 10 or one through 11. It's it's understood that that is the recording time. And yeah. like we get the project done in that time. And then like the remainder days are the ones that are like, we're just having fun those days. Like, don't don't expect that we're like going to do everything proper here. It's like, we're going to just come up with the wackiest idea and we're going to try it and we're going to see what sticks in the mix. And I love that idea. Cause then it's like, you've set the expectation of what, what's going on and it still gives her the opportunity to learn something new and try something. And the band has fun with it and it becomes an experience for everyone. And, and putting it at the end of a project too is cool because you've now spent the, the majority of your time working on the songs and getting them to a place where they sound like music. And then you can step back and look at them and go, okay, what kind of spaces do we have to try something? And okay, great. Let's, you know, like she does mic up the potato or whatever. Yeah. The pickle or whatever. You know? The pickle, right. <laughs> the, the pickle amp or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, mic your chicken. <laughs> yeah, I, I had her on my podcast and she had some wacky ideas of things that she wanted to do with like sending delay signals to the moon using satellites and stuff like that. I was like, that <laughs> is amazing. <laughs> Boy, that's a lot of uh, latency to compensate for. Yeah, <laughs> you just need that really long delay time somewhere in the song. <laughs> yeah. Um, one other thing that I wanted to talk about uh, with you today was uh, the idea of recording or sorry, mixing live records. And I know that you've done that with a bunch of different bands. You've you've mixed albums for bands like Death Cab for Cutie, King, Cream, uh, King Crimson, Lindsey Sterling, The Postal Service. And yep. I was wondering if you could talk about some of the challenges of mixing live albums versus records that were made in a studio. Yeah, the, the always for me, the biggest challenge has been the vocal live because Usually the singer is the quietest person on stage with the most bleed of everything else coming into their mic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, well, the Lindsay Sterling stuff, she doesn't sing. She's a violinist. Um, so that was a little bit easier. Uh, and her violin was going direct. So that makes not bad. Easy. Yeah. But yeah, all the, the King Crimson stuff, all the death cab, um, and Postal Service. Postal Service was a little bit different than Death Cab, even though it's the same singer, uh, because there was so much more direct stuff on stage for Postal Service. Um, you know, Jimmy's whole rig is all direct. Uh, you've got a couple vocal mics. Ben played drums on a few songs, and he would sing. But other than that, he was playing guitar or keys and... Jenny Lewis was playing guitar and keys and she was singing, but like their amps were super isolated. That was great. Uh, compared to death cab where Ben is in front of the whole band. Um, there's yeah, boy, cymbals and drums always are a thing. And he's not a very loud singer. Um, just projection wise. I mean, he can, he projects, but his vocal delivery is on the softer side on a lot of things. And he, his head dances around the mic. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of automation happening on, on those kinds of things. And, and the automation is mostly to get other things out. Um, and only, but then 
you have to be really careful on a live recording like that because as you push up a vocal to have it heard, it's just bringing in everything else. And if you're compressing to try and make the vocal sit with everything else, you're bringing up all low-level stuff. And I'm always doing multiple stages of DSing to try and fix the SE stuff, but also things like cymbal bleed. Like those are in different frequencies than where the vocal S's are. And I want to bring those down, but it's always about balancing, making it not sound like you've got this hard gate on the vocal. Like I'm writing stuff down, but it's never, I'm not going down to zero at all. It has to, you have to find that place of where can I bring it down and make it, make the music sound really powerful. But then when the vocal comes back in, it doesn't suddenly turn into a wash of cymbal crap. And like King Crimson, you got three drummers on stage. Uh, there's a lot going on. Luckily, on those recordings, Jacko, the singer, was at the back of the stage. They had a two-tiered stage. So the drummers were in front on the stage level, and then everybody else was up on risers behind the drummers. So at least the, the null point of his mic was facing drums. But it was still... It's a racket with three drummers. <laughs> yeah, one drummer can be hard enough to make sometimes, right? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so you got three drummers uh, all playing all the time. You know, it's not just like this guy plays, he stops, another one plays. That'd be all right. Nah, they're all playing. <laughs> um, so, but so the, as live, far as... the live stuff, it's a cool challenge. It's It's really fun. Yeah. So as far as the automation side of it goes, are you actually like riding a fader for your automation or are you using gates at all in the process? Uh, no, I'm never gating a vocal. Um, the only only time I will use a little, I might use like Waves Arvox and pull that gate down on there just a little bit because that thing just is so cool. And... But even then, it's it's only catching like super loud stuff. There's always going to be a level of whatever's coming into that mic happening. Um, but just I ride a level of acceptance that you just yeah yeah. I've got I've got a three S one unit here, so I've got twenty four faders, um, and I live on those. Yeah, and, and typically with a lot of these albums that you've worked on, like, have you had any? sort of input prior to the recording of these live sessions like would would that no. change would that change like how you would set up the stage or that kind of thing or it's just all coming to you afterwards yeah that's no i that's not for me to say i don't think um like the will markwell who's death cab's front of house i've known him for him forever um and he always gives me really good sounding tracks cuz he's using uh whatever the latest avid venue system is. I don't, I don't know the live thing real well. So he's tracking to pro tools every night. Um, the crimson guys, uh, I think they were using a Midas console, but I think they were analog. So they were splitting to, I think three Joko 24 track hard disk recorders. Um, I, I don't want to bother anybody who's actually running front of house or any of their system techs to be like, Hey, could you do this for me? 
because they don't care and they yeah. don't have time for that. Uh, I just have to take what I'm given and make it work. And, you know, like the Crimson stuff, it was weird because that was gathered from five nights in a row in Mexico City. Um, and I got 72 tracks per night, five nights, three hour sets. And the sound would change night to night. <laughs> and like the first four nights, all of the cymbal overheads were clipped. Like just the waveform was black. Like, well, I guess I got to make that work. And then the hi-hats were clipped. Why is what? And then night five, it changed and everything got perfectly gain staged. What is happening? <laughs> so they can't go back and re-record that stuff. And it's all, it's, that was also done for a Blu-ray. So it's all synced up to video. Which makes it even harder to, to try to. Even harder. You, you can't and punch it in and, and do edits no, after the fact. No, uh, so you just have to make it work. So I spent a long time in Isotope RX declipping stuff and trying to find settings that I could make work where it would, that, I mean, I use RX as much as I use Pro Tools. That thing just saves my life every day. Um, you know, trying to restore some sense of dynamics and, and transient information to these things that were just cooked to death and it worked um you know nobody heard the mix and said why are those symbols clipped uh but you know you just have to you, you take what you're given and make it work yeah and, and it makes sense too because in a live situation it's like it's so quick and you just have to like get the get get it happening make it work and please the crowd and ev as long as everyone can hear music then we're fine right and, right you know, they don't have time to go and like adjust the mic on stage while the band's playing or you know <laughs> like start gaining everything different or whatever well and who knows where that was even occurring because it if that signal was going to front of house through the speakers they would have heard that and gone, oh my, let's turn that gain down. So it was happening somewhere between stage, recorder, what I got, front of house was getting something else. So, and front of house doesn't care. They're trying to make the show happen. Exactly. Um, that's their job. And okay, so <laughs> that's what I got. Uh, you know, it, you, you can't can't like lay blame on somebody once once you have that in your hands and now your job is to do the mix what are you gonna do that's it make it work yeah you just find a way to to make it as clean as possible yep so speaking of cleanup tools then uh besides rx are there any other tools that you like to use to you know when you get things like clips and pops and noise and all that stuff uh mostly rx uh <laughs> Really, I mean, I just like send stuff directly from Pro Tools there, process it, send it back, render. It's so seamless now for me to just do that. Uh, I'm mixing a film right now where I'm mixing everything, dialogue, effects, music, in surround, um, and you know, the dialogue, some of it's on lav, some of it's on boom, some of it's a combination of both. Um, there's wind noise, there's rustling is all kinds of crap and i'm just constantly 
as I'm going through each scene, send, send it over there, do the thing, send it back. Uh, it's just part of the process now. Yeah. I, I really do think that like mixing film is like the best way to learn to become a music engineer because there's so many problems that can go wrong in film and they all do happen and, yep. and like dialogue, it'll be wind, it'll be like pops and all sorts of stuff. And it's like, you get so forced to like clean up this audio to the point where it's so good. And when you really master that, then like mixing music is a breeze afterwards. And, you know, speed wise too, it's like mi- mixing tons of tracks, oh, like yeah. hundreds of tracks together and, and hour long episodes or whatever. It makes you so much quicker as an audio yeah. engineer in the music world. But it's, but it's a, you know, like I don't, I mix a fair amount of stuff, music for film, but doing all the dialogue and, and effects, not as much. You know, it's been a couple of years now since I've been sent a film thing to do like that. So it's a it's a fun challenge and it's a fun break from normal stuff for me. You know, normal being mixing music. Um, so I would never want to work on one genre of music too. Like if all I did was x i would be i would get really bored i think and i would I'd just be trying to find something new to do <laughs> uh you know i work on i do a bunch of jazz projects i do this rock stuff uh then the live stuff which is sort of all over the map i don't i don't want to do one thing that would be boring and i think i would find myself falling into traps of of cyclical ideas and behavior you know we're like oh okay well here's another pop rock song that has some programming and this and i'm just gonna put the faders up and do my thing and then go to the next song it then it becomes like an assembly line and that's no fun absolutely yeah that's a good point yeah because it, it just again it's going back to that creativity side of it it's like you, you just have to keep creative you have to you know, keep your brain entertained. To Well, I want to be challenged too. I want to feel like I'm out of my comfort zone all the time. Um, because it's too easy to just do the same thing. Um, you know, I took on this film project because the composer, uh, is a good friend of mine and I've produced four records for his band over the years and he got hired to score this thing and then introduced me to the director and, and the right, right. Well, the director and writer are the same guy and the editor, um, as the guy to mix the, the whole thing. Cause I could do it in surround. Um, but yeah, that, that was a little bit of a challenge of like, Oh, well, I hope, I'll do it. I hope I do it right. But I don't let anybody else know that I hope I do it right. You know, you just do it. And when things get frustrating or you can't figure something out, that's what the internet is for. Uh, You know, plenty of resources to find because somebody's found this problem you're experiencing before (laughs) and they've overcome it. Uh, You know, I, I got delivered an AAF project from the editor that importing into pro tools split all of their neatly constructed tracks that were sort of stereo, but sometimes had mono elements on them. Well, pro tools doesn't care. It's just going to break it all up into 
individual mono tracks. So suddenly he was like, so you got these 32 tracks of all the dialogue and effects. I'm like, no, I got 111 tracks. What's happening here? And I tried importing it into Logic as an AAF, into Cubase as an AAF. Uh, and they all did the same thing. So I was like, well, okay. So, you know, the first couple of days were just organizing this huge session into something manageable. And it kind of blew up all their edit decisions that they had made for tracks because things that were muted, I guess, in his project were not muted in mine. Um, so move on, do it, make it work. <laughs> I love it. That, that, that's, I mean, that's the attitude to have, right? It's just like, get it done. Cause no one, no one wants to hear anybody whining about like, Oh, this isn't set up the way I normally want or that kind of thing. Right. It's like, just get it they done. They don't care. They, they're paying you for a job. Yeah. Couldn't agree and more. unless it's, you know, <laughs> if it's completely insurmountable, something is so broken that you just have to say, okay, we have to, let's go backwards a little bit. How do we fix this thing? Is there a way you can give me a file that is exactly what you did? You know, whatever. But they have other things to do too. Mm -hmm. They're not now just sitting there waiting for you to deliver a mix. They're still doing stuff. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so you just do it. Make it happen. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I wanted to ask about when it came to the live stuff, and it, it does tie, tie into some of this film stuff as well, is 5.1 mixes. And mm -hmm. and a lot of the mixes that you did were in 5.1. And yep. so I'm curious to, to know, like, what are some of the challenges of working on music in surround? Um, it's It's less of a challenge, and it's more of a decision to be made beforehand of how people want things delivered. So like a, a concert film, let's say like the postal service stuff or death cab, like generally you want to, they, they will ask for a music mix where it's kind of stereo in the front ambience, crowd noise, maybe some effects in the back. So it's more like you're plopped at the best seat in the house and you're hearing a show and it feels like you're in the middle of everything. King Crimson was very different because you've got a band with three drummers and they've put out plenty of live things where it's that you're hearing the music and seeing the music in front of you, crowd noise, ambience and stuff is in the back. I proposed that we treat it like a combination of circles and triangles um, so that with three drummers, one's going to go in the back and two are going to go hard left and hard right in the front. So there's your triangle. Now you've got a big circle around you that we're going to put everybody else in. So one guitar player is on the left, one's on the right, bass is in the front, other stuff is in the back, some keyboards, some effects. I thought, why make this sound? It's King Crimson, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's, it's already not normal. Yeah. So why why do what's been done before? Um, and I I had drawn a diagram of how I saw this happening, and I emailed it to Fripp, and was like, "What about that?" He's like, "Okay, let's try it." <laughs> He's always game for something new. Uh, so. 
you know, doing it, trying to think outside the normal box and selling that idea is a challenge. I mean, you're already limited by your audience. Who's going to listen and surround? It's true. <laughs> um, but I met, I produced a record last year for a, a band in Seattle. Uh, that's a very hard to describe kind of Celtic with well, very, very Celtic oriented guitar players, Scottish singers, English. Um, and they have a, a very deep traditional Celtic music foundation, but then they're a rock band and then there are strings and huge vocal arrangements and all this stuff. Um, so I proposed, I knew these were going to be, you know, big, huge arrangements, all kinds of stuff. We're going to be looking at 150 tracks on everything. I said, let's mix the whole thing in surround. And it was a double record. It's 27 songs. It's, it's crazy. Who puts this out? Um, so I said, we're going to, I'm going to mix the whole thing in surround and you'll have stereo for CDs and whatnot. But having that kind of landscape to move things around into just made it so much more interesting. Um, and surround gives you, you don't have to compress and limit and band limit things as much in surround because you're not cramming it all into two speakers right then. I mean, ultimately, yeah, you got to make the stereo version and <laughs> all that fun stuff you've just done goes away. But even what I've found is that mixing in surround and then down mixing into stereo because of the phase differences that you're now getting, squishing it into stereo, it still sounds more open than if you only mixed in stereo. So I will collapse my 5.1 mix into stereo um, using, oh, I'm forgetting, uh, Spanner, uh, which is a, a fantastic up and down mixing plugin. Um, and, and it's just amazing. So like the stereo mixes for that record were the collapsed surround ones and they sound great i think yeah so you typically start with the five one mixes and then down mix yeah. yeah yeah that's a lot easier than trying to mix stereo and then go up from there there but with something like the crimson stuff where you were doing like the circles and triangles like i imagine yeah. that that doesn't quite down mix as easily as something that maybe is more ambient in the back and some of the effects in the back that kind of thing no it actually does yeah yeah, uh, because I don't treat the rears any differently than like th th that's just another pair of speakers. They're full range as far as I'm concerned. And anything that can go in the front can go in the back. You know, they're they're all I'm running a Genelec system here with three ways for all the all five speakers. Um, and they're all full bandwidth and. I just treat the speakers as such. It's not like just effecty shit in the back that's small and thin. Um, I'll put a whole drum kit back there. That's awesome. I love that. I, and I think as far as creativity goes too, that surround world, it, it's, it opens up things a lot and you can have it, a lot of fun with it. I'm, I'm just sad that 
from a delivery standpoint and and a consumer standpoint, like nobody's going to sit down and listen to it. Um, it's true. It's like it's it's a hard sell to most music listeners. And even the the Apple immersive audio thing um, now with and Atmos and stuff like that. It's a great idea. I think it's awesome. Uh, nobody's ever going to hear the mix the same on their earbuds, even though they claim that you can hear spatial audio, front, back, all that stuff. No. <laughs> and and how many people are going to have a, I mean, even 5.1, how many people have a properly set up 5.1 system you know, on their TV for watching a movie? They've got all five speakers sitting under the TV. <laughs> Um, so true it's it's hard to and you have no control over your delivery platform so i i love the idea of it and i i will continue to sound the the alarm for it and think it's great uh it just it's a bummer that more people aren't going to hear it the way it's supposed to be heard yeah well I've definitely people are happy with listening to stuff on their phone and earbuds and spotify and whatever and it's all there are everything's limited yeah do you think that that's just because humans are lazy and we don't want to absolutely don't want to invest in something new (laughs) well it's 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 lazy and it's also what music has become it's a commodity it's a it's wallpaper and it's background noise you know how many people sit and listen to an album as an album in a row, you know, song beginning of the, of the album to the end of the album, every song in order, uh, everybody listens on shuffle. It's one song to the next, or they're listening to Spotify or Apple music or whatever. And it's, it's like the radio, it's one song and then it chooses what your next song is. And it chooses what your next song is. Um, there's, there's no listening for the sake of listening to the music in, in the way I grew up. Certainly. Uh, I sound like an old fart fuddy duddy. I know, but <laughs> no, I, I'm with you on this. I agree. <laughs> uh, but I still, I, you know, I'm the guy that buys CDs and I want to listen to a, I want to hear what the artist intended for me to hear because I'm still as much a fan of music as I am a, a creator and facilitator of making music, you know, I still get excited when my favorite bands put out a new record. I want to hear what their idea was. And it's important to me from a respect standpoint to hear that from them. They put the time into it. I know what it took because I do this every day. I know what it took to create this and I want to give it that time. And that to me is still extremely important. Of course. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens uh, in the future, especially now that like Adele, for example, with her last record, she got Spotify to get rid of the shuffle button on her, on her latest album. Right. And it's like, you know, I don't know that many other artists are going to follow that path, but it's an interesting motion to make and well, to see if people, how many other it. artists have that, that clout too. It's true. You know, if you have the number one album on there, you can say, Hey, why don't you take that button away? 
or I'll remove it from your service or whatever, you know, what's, what's going to be the, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not a Spotify user, so I don't, I don't, these things don't affect me. It's true. Yeah. It's one service, right? So it's like, right. Y- you really need like all of the top artists to, to get together and agree on this as, as their new way of doing it. And yeah, whether that'll happen or not, it's unlikely, but yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I I totally agree with you, and I think that you know it's it's interesting because I've I've definitely interviewed a lot of people on this podcast who are in the film world, and everyone's talking about Atmos, and it's like going to be the next best thing, or whatever. And I can see why Atmos, and, I, and maybe like you know, I hope that I look back on this episode and take back my words, but you know, I I can see how in film Atmos will be a thing because it, it makes sense in that world. It's, it's the reason why surround still exists. But in audio, we've tried lots of different things before, and it, it's it. I, I I agree with you. I I don't think that people are listening to music the same way they were when we had the switch from mono to stereo. You know, like that. <laughs> nothing has really changed since then. You know. Well, then they tried it with quad and yeah. You know, you got baked and listened to Dark Side of the Moon, but then that died. (laughs) You know, like, how long did Quad last? It's, I think a lot of it is because it's an expensive proposition, you know, to ask of a consumer to have 5.1, to have Atmos. Like, who's going to set up 14 speakers in their living room and who's paying for it. That's a lot of money. (laughs) It's not inexpensive for your consumer that you want to hear this stuff correctly to go spring. You know, it's, it's like weekend warrior stuff. Yeah. Um, Until the cost of these speakers can drastically come down. It it, it probably won't catch on. And, and how are you going to set it up in a living room where now you, my wife doesn't want, speaker cable draped all (laughs) over the living room uh and we have a 5-1 setup in there but my friend and i had to go into the crawl space of the house and send the cables for shit and go into the attic like yeah you gotta make it look super clean (laughs) yeah uh it isn't you know you, you apple comes out with a new thing and says this is the future of audio listening well you're apple and you're the 49 bajillion trillion dollar valued company. You don't care about nobody can afford to go buy a 7.1.4 setup for their living room. Like you're Apple. Yeah. Somebody will do it and they'll make their money off of those people. Of and course. That's, and that's all they need. And and it doesn't cost them anything to stream another version of something from Apple Music. They don't care. They're a phone company. I say this as an Apple fan, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I agree. <laughs> I, I I understand, but you know, I I long for the days of Apple knowing that we creators need their tools. We need them to make tools we can use uh, to make this stuff. Which is so at least they're sort of heading back in that direction. It seems, but the, they're a phone company now more than anything. <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, hey, they're 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 encouraging a little bit more music creation by having GarageBand on all their computers and this and that and and for that I you know, I'm super grateful about that, but I definitely agree with you. There's you know, 
they're just doing their own thing. <laughs> they're doing their own thing. Yeah. And you 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 follow it or you abandon it. It's kind of yeah. where it's at. Yeah. And there and there's a loyalty to those companies for whatever reason we all have and you know, it's they make great computers, I guess, you know, or great phones and right. that's it, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm recording this on my Mac Pro right now and I'm talking to you on my iPad. I've I've drunk the Kool-Aid. Uh <laughs> But it's it's definitely become much more about what tool do I need to do my job best and fastest. And I don't really care what that is anymore, where I used to be very much in the like PC Mac, I'll fight you on this one thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, I just want to do my work fast so that I can not live in the studio every day. <laughs> Fair. And, 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 and every know, hour. <laughs> and, I, and I think that that's a good full circle moment here and probably a good spot for us to wrap up because, yeah, like, you know, we first started talking about this idea of just like, you know, developing your craft and working on it and becoming more efficient with it and, and you know, honing in on those skills so you can make decisions quicker and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's, that you know, a good way to wrap things up here. Um, Don, thank, thank you for taking the time to do this. If people want to learn more about you, what's the best place for them to find more about you and follow you? Uh, I'm, uh, well, I have a website at dongun.com, D-O-N-G-U-N-N.com that I'm really, really crappy about updating, but it's got a fairly recent discography and a little blurb about me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm on, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Don underscore K underscore gun. I've also become really crap at updating those things. Just, I don't know. I've, I've kind of. I've lost my my zeal for scrolling and keeping up with stuff and feeling like I need to be posting about all the stuff that I'm doing or just something random. I've I've embraced not feeling that need in the last like year or so after spending so long just sort of doom scrolling the news and all kinds of crap and I'm just going like it's not good for me it's not good for anybody else um but i'm there you know you can always reach me there yeah Uh, it's just my feed is boring now (laughs) (laughs) well people can check it out for sure and yeah there there are a lot of squirrel photos good yeah squirrel photos and and probably pictures of my dog (laughs) awesome and lastly are there any cool projects that you're currently working on that you can talk about uh, this film is pretty cool. Um, I can't talk about who the writer director. Is. It's a short. Uh, it'll probably be a festival kind of thing next year, but it's being done by someone in the wider movie world. Um, and this is his first writing and directing foray. He's been much more on the produce- producing side of things. Um, so that's cool. I'm doing the debut record from a melodic death metal band called Veriteris, um, here in Seattle. Uh, and then it's another kind of hard rock band from around here. I'm in the middle of mixing called Crossing Crusades. And then next year I've got a bunch of things kind of on the books starting in February, um, which will involve me doing hopefully actually some more drumming uh, and more playing in addition to engineering. Amazing. Yeah. Which will be nice to 
Yeah, and especially after you've had that creative month of January, you're gonna you're gonna be ready to go. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, let's uh, let's see if my arms work right. Yeah, <laughs> awesome, man. Well, again, thank you for taking the time to do this. I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's we'll been, have to have uh, you back it's been on. A lot of fun. Point. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. I am. Uh, you know where to find me. <laughs> of course. <laughs> awesome. So that was my interview with Don Gunn, and I really enjoyed that conversation. I thought it was really refreshing to hear someone talk about taking the time to work on your craft, and I love the idea of him just taking January off to work on his stuff and, you know, experiment and have fun. I think that, you know, like we said in this in this episode, it is really important to carve out that time, whether it's five minutes a day or 10 minutes or, or you know, an hour a week or whatever, whatever you can afford to do by taking that time to actually work on your skills and practicing things it can re-energize you it can make you feel more creative and have a lot more fun and enjoy the process of working on this stuff so it's something that i highly recommend you do and give that a shot and i definitely know that i will be doing that for myself um it's been one of my goals for the last little while to just take some time to just play drums you know for me i'm a drummer i haven't been able to play drums as much as i'd like to um and i just want to dedicate a little bit more time to doing that and you know even if it's booking you know a day a week at the local rehearsal factory or something like that so that I can practice then you know I think that'll give me a lot more energy and inspire me a lot more and, and I definitely recommend that you give that a shot as well so Don thank you once again for being on here I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that you the listener enjoyed this episode as well and if you did please make sure to subscribe to this podcast that way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live on Wednesday mornings and also while you're at it make sure to check out masteryourmix.com that is where I help out musicians with home studios with creating pro-sounding recordings from their homes and feeling confident through the entire process. So definitely check out the website. We've got tons of great resources on there that will help simplify the process of recording and mixing and editing your music. And while you're there, definitely make sure to check out my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And inside of that book, I give you a step-by-step process for mixing, walking you through everything you need to know about EQ, compression, effects, automation, and so much more, giving you a step-by-step process to follow so that there's really no question as to what to do or when you're done your mix. Instead, it's all laid out inside of that book. So definitely check that out. Once again, it's called The Mixing Mindset, and it's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed that, and I'll talk to you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.